Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Ladies and gentlemen, today we bring you a tale rife with murder and mayhem, but also something more. We present to you a portrait of an artist and writer, a literary provocateur, and countercultural icon whose life and work defied all conventional boundaries. William S. Burroughs. The writing of this elder statesman of the Beat Generation would challenge societal conventions and shatter censorship laws with its vivid portrayal of taboo subjects such as drug addiction, violence, and deviant sex, using a bizarre experimental style that defied narrative structure and explored the darker recesses of the human psyche. While he became a patron saint of the underground to many, deemed the godfather of punk and pope of dope, William Burroughs lived a life marked by personal turmoil and tragedy, including murders, suicides, overdoses, addiction, and psychosis. Dear listeners, welcome to a very special episode of Murder Coaster. Let's begin. Prologue. A lunch most naked. In 1956, in Tangiers, Morocco, William Burroughs sits before his Remington typewriter in room nine of the El Munira Hostel, his long nicotine-stained fingers poised before the keys. Despite the African heat, he's dressed in his signature gray flannel three-piece suit, which affords him a cloak of invisibility, allowing him to slip in and out of the shadow world of crime and debauchery unnoticed. The earthy sense of cumin and coriander from the food vendors in the alley below permeate the warm air, drifting into the latticework window on a salty Mediterranean breeze. Burroughs lets loose with a furious sputter of taps on the Remington, pounding the words out. Black insect lusts open into vast other planet landscapes. Naked lunch demands silence from the reader. Otherwise, he is taking his own pulse. Outside, the Muslim call for prayer rings out. The musin's voice rich with devotion as it sings, calling the faithful to their sacred duty. Burroughs puts his hash pipe to his lips, runs a flame over the keef, which bubbles and broils as he inhales the rich smoke. He breathes out a thick blue cloud and opens himself up, and lets the words pour out from his subconscious, like a free-form sax solo in a bebop jazz song. I am not a recording instrument. I do not presume to impose story plot continuity in so far as I succeed in direct recording of certain areas of psychic process. 
The word is divided into units, but the pieces can be had in any order, being tied up back and forth in and out like an interesting sex arrangement. This book spills off the page in all directions, kaleidoscope of vistas, medley of tunes and street noises, farts and riot yips and the slamming steel shutters of commerce, screams of pain and pathos, screams plain pathetic, copulating cats and outraged squawk of the displaced bullhead, prophetic mutterings of brujo and nutmeg trance, snapping necks and screaming mandrake sigh of orgasm, heroin silent at dawn in the thirsty cells. Radio Cairo screaming like a berserk tobacco auction, and the flutes of Ramadan fanning the sick junkie like a gentle, lush worker in the gray subway dawn. Gentle reader, we see God through our assholes in the flashbulb of orgasm. Through these orifices, transmute your body. The way out is the way in. He pulls the paper from the typewriter, tosses it to the dusty floor where it falls, scattered with hundreds of others. He wants to break all conventions, all barriers. Nothing is off limits. He'd dredge his mind for the most nightmarish and horrific images, sexual, science fiction, drugs. He wants to be vulgar. He wants to be crude, to short-circuit control with transgression. He wants to shit out his Harvard education onto the paper. He inserts a new, clean, white sheet into the Remington and begins to pound on the typewriter keys, fingers crab-like, jerking his thumbs and index fingers up and down like pistons. Did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? His whole abdomen would move up and down, you dig? farting out the words. It was unlike anything I ever heard. This ass talk had a sort of gut frequency, a bubbly, thick, stagnant sound, a sound you could smell. This man worked for the carnival, you dig? And to start with, it was like a novelty ventriloquist act. Real funny, too, at first. After a while, the ass started talking on its own. He would go in without anything prepared, and his ass would ad-lib and cost the gags back at him every time. Then it developed sort of teeth-like raspy, incurving hooks and started eating. He thought this was cute at first and built an act around it, but the asshole would eat its way through his pants and start talking on the street, shouting out it wanted equal rights. It would get drunk, too, and have crying jags. Nobody loved it, and it wanted to be kissed, same as any other mouth. Finally, it talked all the time, day and night. You could hear him for blocks, screaming at it to shut up and beating it with his fist and sticking candles up it. But nothing did any good, and the asshole said to him, It's you who will shut up in the end. Not me, because we don't need you here anymore. I can talk and eat and shit. After that, he became waking up in the morning, 
with transparent jelly like a tadpole's tail all over his mouth. The jelly was what scientists call undifferentiated tissue, which can grow into any kind of flesh on the human body. He would tear it off his mouth and the pieces would stick to his hands like burning gasoline jelly and grow there. Finally, his mouth sealed over except the eyes, you dig? That's the one thing the asshole couldn't do was see. It needed the eyes. But nerve connections were blocked and infiltrated and atrophied, so the brain couldn't give orders anymore. It was trapped in the skull, sealed off. For a while, you could see the silent, helpless suffering of the brain behind the eyes. Finally, the brain must have died, because the eyes went out, and there was no more feel on them than a crab's eyes on the end of a stalk. It was a novel, but one that would deny narrative structure or form. Written in prose, but in the rhythmic cadence and style of a free-form poem like Walt Whitman. It would be a book like James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, but instead of Gaelic and Irish vernacular, he would use the language of junkies and criminals, with the hard-boiled prose of a detective noir story like Dashiell Hammett, Kafkaesque with insect people and endless agencies, like a series of Kafka stories strung together and interwoven, melting into one another. Queers, agents, addicts, trapped in a spider's web of overlapping bureaucracies. A book that showed the horror of the desecration of the human image by control and power. The physical changes were slow at first, then jumped forward in black conks, falling through his slack tissue, washing away the human lines in his place of total darkness. Mouth and eyes are one organ that leaps forward to snap with transparent teeth, but no organ is constant as regards either function or position. Sex organs sprout anywhere, rectums open, defecate and close. The entire organism changes color and consistency in split-second adjustments. Control. Elements of control, limits of control, systems of control and control systems. Sex as a control, drugs a control, police, governments, all the agencies, all working their mechanics of control, operatives of control. Dr. Benway is a manipulator and coordinator of symbol systems and expert on all phases of interrogation, brainwashing, and control. He kept typing, feverish now, thoughts revealing themselves on the paper as he pounded and pounded the keys. The African sun dipping down outside the window and sending slanting latticework shadows across the small, dirty room. The logical extension of infographic research is biocontrol, that is, control of physical movement mental processes, emotional reactions, and apparent sensory impressions by means of bioelectric signals injected into the nervous system of the subject. But control can never be a means to any practical end. It can never be a means to anything 
but more control. The end result of complete cellular representation is cancer. Democracy is cancerous and bureaus are its cancer. A bureau takes root anywhere in the state, turns malignant, like the Narcotics Bureau, and grows and grows, always reproducing more of its own kind until it chokes the host. Bureaus cannot live without a host being true parasitic organisms. Opiates always gave him writer's block, but he was finally off smack and the words were flowing. He'd been on and off junk for decades. As he said, I have used morphine, heroin, dilaudid, eucodol, pentapon, diocidid, diocene, opium, demerol, palfium. I have smoked junk, eaten it, sniffed it, injected it in veins, skin, muscle, and inserted it in rectal suppositories. Whether you sniff it, smoke it, eat it, or shove it up your ass, the result is the same. Addiction. The last habit had been a tough one, the worst yet to kick. He'd been getting a German synthetic morphine called Eucadol. When the manufacturer realized how powerful the high was and how addicting it was, much stronger than heroin, they'd taken it off the market. But there were still boxes and boxes of the stuff at the pharmacy in Tangiers, ready to buy over the counter. No prescription needed. It came in liquid form in little capsulets, ready to be put in a syringe and shot into a vein. It had gotten to the point where he was shooting up every hour. His skin became almost transparent and he wasted down to bone and muscle. As he would later describe the time. I had not taken a bath in a year nor change my clothes or remove them except to stick a needle in every hour in the fibrous gray woolen flesh of terminal addiction. I never cleaned or dusted my room. Empty ampule boxes and garbage piled to the ceiling. Light and water long since turned off for non-payment. I was only roused to action when the hourglass of dope ran out. He hit his keef pipe and took a large bite of majoon, a potent mixture of cooked hashish, just a tad of opium, just enough to give a relaxing buzz, not enough to start a habit, cooked into a confectionery. Many didn't realize that cannabis was actually a very psychoactive drug, but you couldn't reach that point just by smoking the stuff. It had to be eaten in large amounts to reach a truly psychedelic state. He ate more of the sweetened, cooked hash, trying to short-circuit the literate mind and use the typewriter to achieve a more primitive state of awareness, to bypass control, like a literary outlaw. We stock up on heroin, buy a secondhand Studebaker and start west. I was standing outside myself with ghost fingers. I am a ghost, wanting what every ghost wants, a body. After the long time, moving through odorless alleys of space where no life is, only the colorless smell of death. Nobody can breathe and smell it through pink convolutions of gristle laced with crystal snot. Time shit and black blood filters the flesh. The cannabis churning in his mind, the small amount of opium relaxing him as he began to trip, 
He wrote of strange sex aliens and terrible doctors, talking assholes, and the vulgar sexuality of public execution. This is the yen of the brain alone, a need without feeling and without body. Earthbound ghost need, rancid ectoplasm swept out by an old junkie, coughing and spitting in the sick morning. So much to explore with words and try to comprehend. He tried every type of analysis, psychiatrist, psychologist, seen doctors who'd studied under Freud, seen Jungians, Alderians, Reichians, the Washington School, the Karen Horney School, even tried narcoanalysis, which used nitrous oxide to stimulate the subconscious, which caused him to take on other identities and speak with accents. Sometimes a British gentleman, sometimes a southern tobacco farmer. But he found it all to be nonsense. None of it had helped him or led him to any great understanding of himself. The only thing that helped him was writing. A straitjacket notation carefully paralyzed with heavy reluctance. The broken image of man moves in minute by minute and cell by cell. Poverty, hatred, war, police criminals, bureaucracy, all symptoms of the human virus. The death of his wife, Joan. How he'd loved her. Their bizarre and beautiful relationship. He'd never kept his sexual attraction toward men a secret. In fact, it was an element of pride for him. But he'd truly loved Joan. They'd been intimate, had a son together. She understood him better than anyone else. Her wit and black humor, comprehension of literature, she'd been his life partner, accepting of his ways, his fondness for heroin and homosexual encounters. And he'd killed her, shot her in the head. But it had been an accident, a parlor trick gone terribly wrong, right? He was just trying to shoot a glass off her head, the old William Tell trick, a bit of fun to amuse their friends. He hadn't murdered her, or had he? He knew the gun shot low, had some inner part of him, some subconscious element, wanted to murder her? Had it been on purpose, even if he wasn't consciously aware of it? Or had it been fate, a foregone conclusion he couldn't escape? Is that why he'd burst into tears before it happened? Had he somehow known, been psychically in tune to the dark future that awaited him, and been grieving before the incident even took place? Was there even free will? Was anything real? No, nothing was real. Everything was simply permitted. Even the death of Joan, which he'd been running from and running from, both literally and figuratively, now out here on the literal tip of civilization. But the incident led to him being a writer, as he'd later say, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer, but for Joan's death and to a realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with the constant threat of possession and a constant need to escape from possession, from control. So the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have had no choice except to write my way out. He'd loved her, no doubt about that. And he always loved hard. It was a fault of his. Love was like junk, he thought. 
hard to get off the stuff. Like the time he'd sliced the top joint of his pinky finger off for a man he loved, going full Van Gogh, as he'd later say. I say we are here in human form to learn by the human hieroglyphs of love and suffering. There is no intensity of love or feeling that does not involve the risk of crippling art. It is a duty to take this risk, to love and feel, without defense or reserve. And he'd never forgive himself. He'd killed his best friend, his lover, his partner, his wife, and left his son motherless. It weighed on him, but also made him who he was, saying, There are mistakes too monstrous for remorse to tamper or to dally with. Anyone who's never made mistakes like that or paid for mistakes like that, I trust him little in the commerce of the soul. And he'd ended up in Morocco, where at the time there was no stigma attached to homosexuality, drugs flowed freely, where magic was a part of daily life, where sorcerers mixed love potions and poison on the street. Tangiers perched on the tip of Africa, Europe so close above it, was an international zone at the time with its own laws, a geopolitical entity, separate from the rest of Morocco, run by a conglomerate of agencies, including the United States, France, Spain, and others, which made it a liberal and multicultural place tolerant of drugs and homosexuality, which is what had attracted him there. But for Burroughs, it was also a bizarre and phantasmagorical realm where agents of control gathered, a place he saw not as the international zone, but as the interzone, which he used as the setting for his book, a place full of aliens and bug people, all agents of control in a world taken over by bureaucratic conspiracies. AJ is an agent like me, but for whom, for what, no one has ever been able to discover. It is rumored that he represents a trust of giant insects from another galaxy. I believe he is on the factualist side, which I also represent. Though of course, he could be a liquefaction agent. The liquefaction program involves the eventual merging of everyone into one man, by a process of protoplasmic absorption. You can never be sure of anyone in the industry. AJ's cover story, an international playboy and practical joker. There was a knock at the door and in walks Paul Bowles, dressed in a pristine white suit. Paul was a very respected and reputable writer who'd been living in Tangiers for years, much longer than Burroughs. He was the author of The Sheltering Sky, which was quite acclaimed, and Burroughs looked up to him. The two didn't know each other that well. Paul was an established writer, and Burroughs just an expat hack. While Burroughs did have a novel published called Junkie, it was just a thin volume of his experiences with opiates, written under a pseudonym, published only as a pulp paperback for 35 cents, and had hardly set the world on fire or even been noticed much at all. But like his friends, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, Burroughs didn't write to be published. He wrote out of an existential need, as a means of self-examination and therapy. Writing was just what they did, a compulsion, an uncontrollable urge. 
Paul Bowles, who was known for being meticulously neat, looked around at the chaos of the room, the hundreds of typed pages littering the floor, covered in footprints, rat droppings, and crumbs of cheese sandwiches. Disgusted, Paul asked, What is all this? That's what I'm working on. Do you make copies before you throw it on the floor? Nope. Then how are you going to read it? Oh, I figure it will be legible. Paul was dumbfounded. Burroughs spent half his time sweating and fretting over these bizarre creations, these strange scenes and routines, and the other half destroying them. Paul asked Burroughs what he was working on as he typed furiously. A bug, like a big grasshopper, known as the zikutl. Such a powerful aphrodisiac, if one flies on you, and you can't get a woman right away, you will die. On opening night of the New York Metropolitan, AJ, protected by bug repellents, released a swarm of zikutls. Mrs. Vanderbly swatting at a zikutl. Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho! Screams, breaking glass, ripping cloth, a rising crescendo of grunts and squeals and moans and whispers and gasps. Reek of semen and constant sweat, the musty odor of penetrated rectums. Diamonds and fur pieces, evening dresses, orchids. Suits and underwear litter the floor covered by a writhing, frenzied, heaving mass of naked bodies. <laughs> On February 15th, 1957, Burroughs' good friend Jack Kerouac, traveling by freighter, came to see him. Out of all their friends, Jack was the real writer, the most dedicated, the most literary. He'd sold his first novel, The Town and the City, back in 1949. But it had done poorly, the royalties never exceeding the advance, and received terrible reviews in the New Yorker and the Saturday Review. Undaunted, Kerouac had kept at it, writing fiendishly. Burroughs and Kerouac had even collaborated and written a book together, long ago, back in 47, called And the Hippos Boiled in Their Tanks, about the murder of their friend David Kammerer by their other friend Lucian Carr but they'd never been able to get it published. Burroughs was waiting on the docks when Kerouac arrived and ushered him into the city of Tangiers, the thin alleys and cobblestone streets, Kerouac struggling to keep up with his long strides, telling him, you walk too fast. Lard-ass hipsters ain't good for nothing. Burroughs then proudly showed Kerouac his switchblade knife, telling him, yes, sir, without it, I'd be dead now. Bunch of Arabs surrounded me in an alley one night. I just let this old thing click out and said, Come on, you bunch of bastards. And they cut right out. Kerouac was full of exciting news. Their friend, Allen Ginsberg, Burroughs' former lover, had apparently gone famous overnight after reading his poem, Howl, at the new bookstore in San Francisco. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night. Kerouac said people even approached him, saying, Hey, aren't you that guy from that poem? 
but Kerouac was excited for himself as well. He'd finally sold what he considered to be his true masterpiece, On the Road, a wild autobiographical novel written feverishly during a speed binge on one long piece of rolled paper. It was set to be published in October. Kerouac found a hotel room for $20 a month and set to help Burroughs get his novel together, gathering up all the scraps of paper everywhere and organizing them, putting them into one cohesive unit, sometimes even cutting parts out and taping them to other parts. That gives me anxiety just thinking about putting a novel together that way. Yeah. The material began to give him horrible nightmares, especially all the images of children being executed. Kerouac asked Burroughs, why are all these young boys being hanged in limestone caves? Don't ask me. I get these messages from other planets. I'm apparently some kind of agent from another planet, but I haven't got my order clearly decoded yet. I'm shitting out my educated Middle West background once and for all. It's a matter of catharsis, where I say the most horrible things I can think of. The most horrible, dirty, slimy, awful possible. These other writers, the great existentialist anarchists and terrorists, so-called, never even get their own drippy fly mentioned. And Burroughs was so deep into it all, it was terrifying. Assuming the roles and characters in the midst of a conversation, pouring out mad monologues on all types of disturbing topics, scatological, homosexual, super violent, saying he was going to erupt in some great atrocity, such as slaughtering an Arab boy and cutting him open just to see what his guts looked like. Kerouac was scared and cut the trip short. He didn't last in Tangiers a month before he left, complaining about the food, the sanitation, the craziness of the locals. Burroughs thought his problem was that he was too American, didn't like anything outside America. But Burroughs thought America was the true place of evil. The evilest place of all, saying, America is not a young land. It is old and dirty and evil. Before the settlers, before the Indians, the evil was there, waiting. And then the love of Burroughs' life showed up. Allen Ginsberg. Allen was 12 years younger than Burroughs. They'd met in New York City when Allen was just 17 and a freshman at Columbia University, way back in 1946. At the time, Burroughs had found Allen a curious and whiny kid with a sharp intellect, and Allen had been enamored with Burroughs' worldliness and dark wit. But at some point over the tumultuous years, Burroughs had fallen hard for Allen, and Allen had rejected him. William longed to be with Allen so much, it was a physical ache and pain. And Allen had brought his new boyfriend, Peter Arlovsky, along. Burroughs didn't like Peter. He was obviously jealous. He'd been spurned by Allen, and Peter had replaced him in his affections. But he also just got on his nerves. And Allen was different as well. Burroughs had always been the elder, wise man of the group. At 12 years his senior, Burroughs was in many ways from a different generation. More of a statesman for their little group. And now Allen was the famous one. His long poem, Howl, that was about all of them, was a huge hit. And now he was being championed by William Carlos Williams and giving readings to sold-out crowds. But Burroughs soon got over it. The time they spent together that spring of 1957 was a magical time, and Allen Ginsberg was a true friend to William Burroughs, a brother. 
For two months, Alan worked tirelessly, helping his old friend gather up his mad writings and organize them, edit them, put them together into something that resembled a book, and type it all up in duplicate. In the evenings, they'd smoke huge joints and drink brandy, staring out at the sea, and talk about old friends and all the craziness they'd been through over the last decade. And Alan loved what Burroughs was writing. He thought it was genius, and it all made sense to him, just as much sense as the rest of this crazy world made. And it was going to get published, Alan told him. Don't worry, it's getting published. William S. Burroughs is going to be famous. They were all going to be famous. It was their time. They'd earned it. Done their time literally and figuratively. Like Jack Kerouac was always saying, they were the beat generation. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you Chapter 1, Little Billy Burroughs. William Seward Burroughs, the second, or Billy as he was known, was born February 5th, 1914, to Laura and Mortimer Burroughs in St. Louis, Missouri. He had an older brother named Mortimer, named after their father, and Billy was named after his famous grandfather, who'd invented the Burroughs adding machine, a revolutionary device that transformed accounting and the family should have been rich beyond belief, an empire like the Rockefellers. But Billy's famous grandfather had died young, and his partners had taken over, collecting the lion's share of the immense profit from the machines, which grew to be ubiquitous in every business in the country. Burroughs would later brag that he'd never received a cent from the famous adding machines, though he'd received a family allowance of $200 a month nearly his entire life. And the Burroughs family was wealthy enough, if not extravagantly so. Mortimer investing his inheritance and starting a plate glass company. They lived on 4664 Pershing Avenue in a respectable home with a slate roof, a huge yard and garden with a fish pond. While they were in the social register showing their high status, they couldn't afford to be in the St. Louis Country Club, which was the distinguishing line of the elites at the time. When Billy was just a year old, his uncle Horace, who'd become a morphine addict and squandered his inheritance, killed himself in 1915 by cutting his arm on the smashed glass of a window in a Detroit rooming house. Billy grew up with several servants who shaped his world and imagination. Their cook was an old Irish woman, whom little Billy saw as one of the witches in Macbeth and adored. She was full of weird magical spells and hexes, teaching him how to put a curse on someone by putting a needle in moldy bread and encanting. Needle in thread, knead in bread, eye in needle, needle in eye, bury the bread deep in a sty. Which evidently could cause a person to go blind, so don't try that at home, kids. And he had a Welsh nanny, that also taught him curses, like... Trip and stumble, slip and fall, down the stairs and hit the wall. Billy also said he saw her start a fire with her mind. But his memory of her is hazy. Once when he was four, she and her boyfriend took Billy into the forest. And something happened. Something bad, something dark. He could never remember what exactly happened. He thinks the boyfriend had his pants down and his nanny was saying, do it for me. But it's all hazy. 
he'd struggle to remember the incident his entire life. He just remembers his brother asking him if they should tell their parents what had been done to him and the nanny being fired shortly thereafter. Billy was a funny kid, awkward and shy, always with his nose in a book. He says he always felt like an outsider. Says he remembers a man saying, that boy looks like a sheep killing dog. And another woman saying that he, quote, looks like a walking corpse. At eight years old, he began writing, composing a small book entitled Autobiography of a Wolf, about life through the eyes of a wolf. In 1926, when Billy was 12, the family moved to 700 Price Road to a handsome white frame house on five acres. Billy went to the prestigious private school nearby, but never joined any clubs or played in any sports. Here, too, he felt like an outsider, remembering one schoolmate telling him, you're a character, but you're the wrong kind. At 13, he discovered a book that changed his life. You Can't Win by Jack Black. This is a totally legendary book. I've read it many, many years ago. It's the memoir of this hobo, thief, and drug addict. It's some really, really wild stuff full of bank robbers and con men and hardcore junkies shooting up heroin all day. For young Billy, it showed him that there was another world outside of his, a place full of misfits and outcasts, rebels who dropped out of society and lived by their own rules. The book would become an inspiration to him, and he began to write his own crime stories about a young man who becomes a marijuana addict after the death of his dog, and another about a sinister fortune teller. Now check this out. This is from the, the fortune teller story. This is what he was writing as just a little kid. Quote, with an inarticulate cry, the man leaped to his feet and whipped out an automatic, spitting death at the fortune teller. Blood splattered her crystal ball and on the table lay a severed human hand. It's not bad for a 13-year-old, right? Absolutely. He also wrote westerns where outlaws were hanged. Hanging was still the form of capital punishment in Missouri, something he'd see gruesome photos of in the newspaper and hear talked about. It's something that would haunt him and he'd often write about for the rest of his life. Began to think of selling stories to True Confessions magazine and living the life of a writer, which he imagined to be filled with, with money. And plenty of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, I think people still think about writers that way. But to put things in perspective, this is 1928. This is the old school. And in 1929, he had his first published piece, an essay published in the school literary magazine about how he'd sent away for a cheap book on how to have personal magnetism and control others with a glance. But the methods didn't work, and the book was a scam. But for the final two years of high school, it was determined that he should be sent to this crazy boarding school called Ranch School at Los Alamos, New Mexico. It was actually one of the most expensive high schools in the country, situated on 900 acres of rugged country. It was what they called a health school, where spindly rich boys could be transformed into manly specimens by being in the tough and tumble outdoors. They had 400 acres of crops growing, including beans, corn, oats, and alfalfa. 
and 65 horses, hundreds of chickens, and a trading post. Here, Burroughs was given the name Bull, because he talked so much bullshit. <laughs> he hated the nickname, but knew to not let anyone know that, as they'd never stop with it. And, and uh, Jack Kerouac kept it up, called him that, called him that as a pseudonym and on the road. But to Billy, it was like a prison. Like many boarding schools, it was also rife with child molesters. Jesus. <sighs> but um, he did excel at rifle practice and developed a lifelong affection for guns. He also started experimenting with drugs, taking an almost lethal dose of chloral hydrate and ending up in the hospital. And this one cracks me up. So he snuck off into Santa Fe and he's trying to buy alcohol, which it's actually prohibition at this point. So alcohol is like completely illegal for anybody. And he asked this old Mexican woman if she could get him some booze. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he, she starts leading him down the alley. And the cops just see like this old Mexican woman and this little teenage rich white boy and arrest him for vagrancy. It was uh, his first arrest. There would be countless more to follow. And he started a novel about four assassins, continuing to write about the criminal underworld. Now, William Burroughs had always known he was gay ever since he was a child, and he believed he was born that way. But it was here that he'd have his first homosexual experience. It was just really innocent stuff. Him and this boy named Danny Franklin fondling each other under the blankets. But he'd also learn the pain of unrequited love. Because when the boy realized Burroughs was actually affectionate towards him, he teased him ceaselessly and mocked him in front of the other boys. Ashamed, Billy begged his mother to take him home when she visited, finally admitting the truth to her, that he'd been intimate with another boy and was now being harassed and bullied for being queer. Shocked over all of it, his mother agreed and took him back to St. Louis. The school agreed to honorably discharge him and made no comment about the alleged homosexuality with a report that simply read, He has good understanding, but not much sense. His interest in things morbid and abnormal affects his sense of proportion in his work, making spotty and uneven results. His brain power seems sufficient, but... There is doubt about his ability to direct himself. Story of my life. <laughs> Laura insisted he see a psychiatrist. But the doctor told her he'd grow out of his homosexuality. It was just a phase he was going through. Interesting to note that in 1942, the United States government would eventually seize this land and evict the school there, using the ranch to develop the first nuclear bomb which made Burroughs feel personally connected to the nuclear bomb, which he always felt defined his generation. To him, the bomb would represent the individual's powerlessness against state control, a constant fear of unknown dangers. And he'd somehow see a connection of sex and violence and develop a feeling of doom and dread that could only be relieved by the blackest of humor. After a year at a small St. Louis tutoring school that catered to rich parents trying to get their children into good colleges, Billy was accepted to Harvard. Chapter 2. Harvard, Billy. 
In Harvard, William Burroughs got decent grades, excelling in English classes, memorizing hundreds of lines of Shakespeare, which he'd recite for the rest of his life, and attended lectures by famed poet T.S. Eliot. He also discovered Coleridge and became fascinated by how almost all of his work was written during opium trances, vowing to try that process when he got the chance. He was known as an oddball and eccentric. He kept a ferret in his room, as well as a 32 revolver that actually accidentally went off in his room one day, nearly killing another student. He did his time there almost like an inmate in a prison and claims he hated it. He refused to participate in their waspy bourgeoisie bullshit, joined no clubs, played no sports, and when he graduated, didn't even attend his own graduation ceremony. He worked as a reporter briefly for the St. Louis Dispatch, but found he didn't have the temperament for it, wasn't ready to go to any length to get a story, barging into people's lives during times of strife, pestering them with questions. He would say, If you're not a shit already, this job will make you one. He had a strong libido, but was sexually repressed because of his homosexuality and extremely frustrated, and ended up losing his virginity to a woman in a St. Louis whorehouse though he was eventually able to find a male prostitute. But the man gave him syphilis. This was before penicillin, and he had to take arsenic for 18 months to cure himself of the disease, living in a state of celibacy over fear of spreading the dreaded ailment. In 1936, he went to Europe, going from Paris to Vienna, living off the $200 a month allowance. Nazis were everywhere. And he was very aware that they either shot homosexuals or sent them off to labor camps. The ultimate agents of control gathering insidious power. And I don't it's really wild because like you think of like Ginsburg and Kerouac and they're kind of like younger than him. You know, he's, can you imagine being in Vienna in 1936 watching the Nazis come to power? It's, it's really old school and wild, man. Yeah, and something about Vienna appealed to him, and he decided to stay there and go to medical school. While nearly every day in Vienna there were bombings, and most of his fellow students were Nazis. He watched as anti-Semitism began to flourish, newspapers publishing articles about the evil of the Jews, and also the, quote, criminal world of the international homosexual. While there, he befriended an older Jewish woman named Ilsa, who had fled Germany because of the rise of the Nazis. Burroughs loved her quick wit and dark sense of humor. She was a character. She was like big and kind of mannish looking, and she wore a monocle. She would take in the gypsy cafes and other bohemian hotspots. But her visa was about to expire, and as a Jew, she was unable to renew it. And Ilsa was in a panic she'd be sent back to Germany. She longed to go to America, where she could live freely. So Billy offered to marry her and make her an American citizen. But they were such an odd couple, this much older mannish woman with a monocle and this baby-faced boyish American, that they couldn't find a priest to take them seriously and perform the ceremony and had to go all the way to Greece to get married. But they finally pulled it off and in July of 1937, they were wed. As the grumble of an approaching war grew louder, Billy's parents begged him to come back to America and he did, leaving Ilse there in Europe. There was no romance between the two. They'd never been intimate at all. 
he was attracted to men, and the marriage was simply to save her from being deported and sent to a concentration camp. Billy took some graduate courses in psychology at Columbia, but the statistics classes were too cold and boring for him. So he went back to Harvard and started taking archaeology courses, studying Mayan culture and learning the Navajo language. He did some writing, collaborating with a friend on a humorous story about a sinking ship. And this is the story where he first came up with Dr. Benway, an irresponsible and bizarre surgeon who he'd use in stories throughout his life. They sent the story to Esquire, but it was rejected for being, quote, too screwy. Burroughs actually took the rejection quite hard and says he hated academic life. The faculty tease, having to behave so primly, and professors could lose their jobs if they were even seen in a gay bar. That was no life for him. Ilsa was trying to make her way to America from Europe, and Billy had to attend an immigration hearing where he was asked by a judge if the marriage was sincere. He testified that he loved his wife and wanted her in the United States with him. And she was granted her visa, and three weeks later, Ilsa was in New York City, where she became a part of the growing Jewish refugee community. Ilsa became a secretary for Ernst Toller, a left-wing writer who was also a Jewish refugee. He'd fought for Germany in World War I, but became so disillusioned he'd become a communist and was sent to a firing squad to be executed. But the soldiers refused to execute him, and he served five years in prison where he wrote plays. He was a deeply troubled man, haunted by the horrors of war and the growing Nazi menace. And one day, Ilsa would discover him dead. He'd hung himself with the belt to his bathrobe. Burroughs considered his death another crime of the Nazis. The horrors of Europe had finally gotten to the poor guy. Burroughs would affectionately say about his wife, Ilse, she never asked me for one cent. <laughs> In August of 1939, Burroughs went to Chicago to attend lectures by one Count Alfred Korbsky on his book, Science and Sanity, then traveled to New York. Through a friend, he met the poet W.H. Auden. Burroughs thought he was a pretty good poet, but hated him personally, thought he was pompous and insufferable. He'd always start a conversation by saying... As a Christian, my opinion is... Mm, that's not tiresome at all. <laughs> Billy was staying at the Taft Hotel on 7th Street, and one evening a maid walked in on him in bed with another man in the act of lovemaking. A hotel detective was called, and he was told he had ten minutes to get his belongings and get out, or they were going to call the police and have him arrested. And it was a tough time to be a gay man in the world. He was an outlaw by his very sexuality in nature. He fell in love with a hustler named Jack Anderson. Love was such a weird thing to him. He didn't understand it, but it was so powerful. He wondered to himself, why was he so in love with this man? He couldn't understand it. Jack wasn't particularly bright or witty, was very shallow and vain. He was a jerk, would get drunk and taunt Bill, make fun of him, and he'd sleep with anyone, man or woman, which filled Burroughs with a mad jealousy. Love was like an affliction, something he desperately wanted to get over, and the only answer seemed to be mutilation, self-harm, and pain. He thought of Van Gogh, how he'd cut off his own ear because he'd loved so hard. He needed to do something like that. So he went to a cutlery store and bought a pair of poultry shears, 
industrial stainless steel ones, with one blade a sawtooth, made for cutting turkeys into sections. Staring at himself in the mirror of the little boarding room he was staying in, wondering why his heart yearned so hard for this man that it was like a painful affliction, he put his pinky finger in the shears, resting the top joint on the sawtooth blade, and squeezed the scissors closed lopping off the top of his pinky, which fell to the dresser with a soft thunk. He looked down at his hand and blood squirted up into his face. For a moment, he froze in terror at what he'd done, but then great waves of euphoria rolled over him. He felt elated, free. He considered it a symbolic act of castration. He wrapped his finger up in a handkerchief and went to the bar to celebrate. And after a few whiskeys, went to a psychiatrist he'd been seeing to proudly show off what he'd done and tell him how great he felt. The psychiatrist was horrified. He convinced Burroughs that he needed to go to the hospital for stitches. And once at the hospital, the psychiatrist had him committed. My God, the lousy bastard shanghaied me into the nuthouse, Burroughs thought. And to top it all off, his finger joint, which he'd wanted to keep, was lost in the melee. The next day, a doctor came to his room and interviewed him, asking, Do you hear voices? When people talk to me, I can hear them talking. No, I mean, do you hear voices talking in your head? I suppose you could say I have a vivid imagination. Now, what about self-mutilation? Well, that's part of an initiation ceremony into the Crow Indian tribe. Mr. Burroughs, why do you have these mannerisms? Everyone has mannerisms. Not mannerisms like yours, Mr. Burroughs. <laughs> the doctor diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic and ordered him permanently committed. In a panic, Burroughs managed to call his father who pulled some strings and got him sent to a hospital in St. Louis. He stayed there for a month and was then released to the care of his parents. Burroughs worked as a delivery man for a while, delivering food and groceries to rich people who demeaned him, told him to use the servant door. It was 1940, and he was utterly miserable. His lover, Jack, came from New York to visit him. They went to the bar and got hammered. Then Burroughs tried to teach him how to drive, and they wrecked the family car marking Billy as even more of a loser and degenerate, getting him arrested yet again. The war was ramping up, and he decided to enlist in the Navy, but he flunked the physical, the Navy doctor saying, He is nearsighted and flat-footed, a poor physical specimen. So he decided to learn to fly, and enrolled in the Lewis School of Aviation in Locksport, Illinois. He was a good pilot. He did 100 hours of flying, easily passed the written test, and got his pilot's license. But when he tried to join the glider corps, he was turned down because of his bad eyesight, and he'd never fly a plane again. His father got him a job interview to be an actual spy for OSS, which would later become the CIA. But who should he be interviewed by but his former housemaster from Harvard, who hated him because he'd had a ferret, and also accidentally discharged a firearm in his room, so he didn't get the job. He was a freak, a misfit. Exasperated, he moved back to New York City, 
and got an apartment with his lover, Jack, much to the chagrin of Jack's girlfriend, who resented that they would often sleep together. But he managed to get a job writing ad copy for an advertising company. He was given the products that no one else wanted, like a colonic called Cascade that was used like an enema. Here's what he wrote for them. It is no more like an enema than a kite is like an airplane. Well done, though true and faithful servant. That is how many people feel about their cascade. Immeasurable relief sweeps over them. The waste matter that has accumulated for years is often swept away without a trace. You feel as if reborn. <laughs> and that company was later sued by users who had the balloon explode inside them. I am not joking. But uh, <laughs> it was a happy time for Burroughs. But all that changed on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the United States officially entered World War II. After trying unsuccessfully to join the military, William Burroughs was drafted as an infantryman, which is not what he wanted. He wanted to come in as an officer, not a private. He wanted to be a dashing spy, not a grunt on the front lines where he'd be fodder for enemy fire. But he needn't worry. His mother alerted the military to his stays in mental hospitals and his self-mutilation. And after a brief time in a military psychiatric treatment center, he was released. On a whim, he moved to Chicago, where he worked as an exterminator. A job he loved. Because he could make his own hours and drive aimlessly all over the city, meeting all kinds of interesting people. Criminals, deviants, the just plain weird Apartment buildings were required to provide pest control so he could get paid just for offering it, wandering door to door, knocking and saying, Exterminator, you got any bugs, lady? He became an expert in insects and vermin, developed a deep fascination with bedbugs and rats. And that fall, two friends from St. Louis moved to Chicago, Lucien Carr and David Kamara. They were a very odd couple. Lucien was young, only 17, blonde and attractive. He was a freshman at the University of Chicago. David Kemmerer was 31, three years older than Burroughs. He had bright red hair and a strange high-pitched voice, and at over six feet tall, towered over Lucien. David Kemmerer was what you'd think of as a stereotypical beatneck today. He had a long beard, wore sandals, recited poetry, and was obsessed with Buddhism. David was also openly gay and obsessively in love with Lucien. He had quit his job as an English professor and moved to Chicago just to be near Lucien. But Lucien was really more attracted to women. But being a great lover of literature, was enthralled with this English professor Buddhist who was so deeply in love with him. So he'd sleep with him for kicks. They were a weird and wild couple and got Burroughs kicked out of his boarding room when they got drunk as hell, ripped up the Gideon Bible, and pissed out the window. Then Lucien transferred schools and moved to New York City to study English literature at Columbia. Of course, David Kamara soon followed, and Burroughs decided to follow as well and join his crazy friends in New York City. It's here that an entire generation was defined as a group of legendary and iconic writers found each other, 
a group that would define the Beat Generation through their friendship, writing, and adventures, though murder soon followed. Chapter 3. The Libertine Circle William Burroughs found a place in Greenwich Village, 69 Bedford Street, right around the corner from where Camara was living. He worked as a bartender and served papers for a detective agency. At one point, he met a strange young guy working at the New Yorker that he describes as a squeaky-voiced, wizened, and prematurely aged albino that wanted to be a writer. His name was Truman Capote, but Burroughs wasn't impressed with him, and they never became friends. Lucian Carr, meanwhile, being a wild child and social butterfly, was making all kinds of friends in New York City and would bring them to meet Burroughs, who'd often have little parties at his apartment. One of the people Lucian brought was a bright-eyed young Jewish kid and wannabe poet named Allen Ginsberg. Allen was immediately taken with William Burroughs. He seemed so wise, a Harvard graduate who could quote Shakespeare at length, but also a gritty character with an understanding of the underworld. Lucien also introduced Burroughs to a former Columbia student who'd attended the college on a football scholarship, but had quit to join the Merchant Marines, named Jack Kerouac. Kerouac was Canadian originally and had grown up speaking French before his parents immigrated to Lowell, Massachusetts. He was an aspiring writer working on a book called The Sea is My Brother. Kerouac had a girlfriend named Edie Parker, who had a roommate named Joan Vollmer Adams. Joan was an intellectual and studied at Barnard College. Joan was married, but her husband was in the service and stationed in Tennessee, and Joan lived a wild life in New York. She loved to party and was a bit of a nymphomaniac, reveling in sexual escapades and judging her various partners. She had a child, a daughter named Julie, but her husband was not the father though she tricked him into believing he was. Joan and Edie's apartment became the hangout, where they'd all meet and discuss books, jazz music, drink, and smoke. They were a weird little bohemian family of sorts. Burroughs, the elder statesman, filled with worldly knowledge. He took them to Chinese restaurants and taught them all how to use chopsticks. They called themselves the Libertine Circle. Jack Kerouac, the suave and handsome merchant marine writer and his wild girlfriend Edie, Allen Ginsberg, the youngster, so eager to learn from these wild luminaries. Intellectual Joan with her lustful ways, cutting wit, and cute little daughter. There'd be endless discussions on literature, Kerouac arguing the merits of Thomas Wolfe, the deep truths conveyed in his confessional discursiveness, and Burroughs saying it was all a bunch of hogwash. They'd act out scenes from their favorite books, like Andre Guide's crime novel, The Counterfeiters, as well as improvised little skits of their own, dramatic intrigue with Nazi spies and rich countesses. And Lucien had a girlfriend now, a young, beautiful blonde girl, which filled Camara with rage. Camara would fume and pine to anyone who'd listen about how he loved Lucien, a deep and endearing love not just a sexual lust, how his heart was broken, which both irritated and bored Burroughs, as well as all the others. Kammerer's unhealthy obsession with the much younger and straight Lucian was getting on everyone's nerves. 
and Kammerer was just growing more desperate and weird, stalking Lucian, even breaking into his dormitory at Columbia at night to stare at him while sleeping. Red flag. <laughs> this deeply odd relationship with Kammerer, the eldest of the group, nearly 40, a redheaded Buddhist, and young cherubic and blonde Lucian, still only a teenager, came to a head on a hot summer night in 1944. On August 14, 1944, William Burroughs was awakened at dawn by Lucian, wild-eyed and distraught, saying, I just killed the old man. We were standing on the bank of the river, and I stabbed him and threw him in. So this is how the great David Kamara ends. You'd better turn yourself in. Plead self-defense. They'll put me in the hot seat. Don't be absurd. Get a good lawyer and do what they say. Evidently not liking Burroughs' advice, Lucian then went to Edie's apartment, waking up Jack Kerouac at six in the morning, telling him it was self-defense, that Kammerer had told him he couldn't live without him and that he was going to kill the both of them. Kerouac got dressed and went with Lucian to help him get rid of evidence, burying Kammerer's glasses in the park and throwing the Boy Scout knife used in the murder down a grate. But the guilt was too much for Lucian, and two days later, he turned himself in. The police were baffled and skeptical, as the body hadn't even been found. But it would soon turn up when the Coast Guard discovered it, prompting a New York Times headline article reading, A fantastic story of homicide, first revealed to the authorities by the voluntary confession of a 19-year-old Columbia sophomore was converted yesterday from a nightmarish fantasy into a horrible reality by the discovery of the body of the victim in the murky waters of the Hudson River. Both Kerouac and Burroughs were arrested as material witnesses for not reporting a homicide. Burroughs' father immediately bailed him out, but Jack Kerouac's father said he had disgraced the family and refused to help his son. Kerouac told Edie that if she put up the $100 bail money, he'd marry her. And she did. That's so fucked. That's fucked up. Uh, but she did. And they got married on August 22nd, 1944. These guys all definitely have their faults. They're they're very human, <laughs> human people. Uh, when it was revealed that Kamara was a homosexual who had followed the much younger Lucian around the country, the DA offered a reduced charge of manslaughter. And he served just two years though he'd eventually make his way back into their lives. When he got out, he wanted nothing to do with his bohemian friends. And years later, when Ginsburg mentioned him in the dedication to his famous poem, How, Lucian said it was, Dig up the past and roll in your own shit poetry. Can't you word bandiers stick to your own ghosts and leave mine alone? In Burroughs' opinion, Kamara had sadly brought it all on himself. And he and Kerouac wrote a novel together about the incident called And the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks, a phrase Burroughs had heard on the radio when a circus caught on fire. And they were actually able to get a literary agent to represent them. But every publisher in town turned it down. It was a dark time for the little group. Since Burroughs had been in psychoanalysis for nearly his entire life, he offered to analyze Ginsburg and Kerouac, and they agreed. At one point, Ginsburg broke down and just started sobbing, 
nobody loves me, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. Burroughs thought that it was a bunch of dramatic bullshit, a cry for attention, and wanted to say, Why should anyone love you? But he held his tongue instead. Kerouac talked about how his mother hated all his friends, and Burroughs said to him, Trouble with you, Jack, is you're too hung up on your mother's apron strings. You're going around in circles. Are you man enough to break away? Ginsburg, who was very Jewish and proud of his heritage, thought it would be funny and self-deprecating to write Fuck the Jews in the dust of his dormitory window at Columbia with a skull and crossbones, as well as a large cock and balls beside it for good measure. The school didn't find it funny, and when the dean burst into the dorm room to demand he scrub it off, he saw Jack Kerouac passed out there on the floor. Kerouac, who'd quit the football team to join the Merchant Marines, had also been declared a, quote, an unwholesome influence on the students, end quote, after the whole Lucian Carr murder business, and was banned from the Columbia campus. So it was quite the incident. Ginsburg was told to take an immediate leave of absence and was told he could not return without a letter from a psychiatrist saying he was in the proper frame of mind to take on academic responsibilities. Ginsburg was pissed. He was a genius and a model student. He got all A's in his classes. He edited the school's humor magazine, The Jester, ran the Literary Society, was on the debating team, and had even won the Woodbury Poetry Prize. He was getting kicked out for writing graffiti in the dust. It was a changing point in his life where he started to see the world as an us versus them scenario. The rebels and the wild at heart, the freaks and artists and poets versus the establishment. And so it was also the beginning of the American counterculture. For this feeling in this young poet's heart would actually change the whole fucking world. And he'd become a spokesman, not only for the beats, but for the hippies as well. And in the coming decades, Allen Ginsberg would usher in an actual social revolution that would change the very fabric of society. And then an event would occur that Burroughs saw as the changing point of humanity, as a historical dividing point of before and after, an event which would define his generation, a generation his good friend Jack Kerouac would later name the Beat Generation. On August 6, 1945, the Enola Gay dropped the atomic bomb named Little Boy onto Japan, obliterating the city of Hiroshima. Just three days later, Big Boy was dropped over Nagasaki. Burroughs saw the atomic bomb as the end of culture and religion in a traditional sense. Everything was now permitted, and there was no God. For him, it was the beginning of an age of nihilism and cruelty, where countless bureaucracies sought to control all of humanity. Joan and Edie, meanwhile, had found a large apartment on 419th West 115th Street, and Kerouac and Ginsburg moved in. Joan had divorced her husband at this point, and Edie worked as a cigarette girl at the Zanzibar nightclub. How, how iconic is that? A cigarette girl at a nightclub? It's so beatnik. And of course, William Burroughs was hanging out there at that apartment. Methamphetamine had been wildly used in World War II to energize soldiers by all sides, America included. And it was now being marketed and used all over the United States 
as everything from a dieting drug to lose weight to a cure for sinus inflammations or just as a pep pill to get you going, especially for long haul truck drivers. One of the brands of methamphetamine was Benzedrine, which was put inside inhalers to open up the bronchial passages during asthma attacks. So if you just crack the inhaler open, pull out the meth-soaked little strip of paper, and drop it into a cup of coffee, you'll be flying for days. The entire Libertine Circle was experimenting with Benzedrine and Speed, often staying up for days on end, talking about books, jazz, writing, philosophy, world religion, psychology putting on little skits, playing mind games. But Jack Kerouac and Joan, in particular, loved the stuff. They were always on it. But Burroughs had found a different high. He didn't like speed. He liked downers, especially opiates. He'd managed to get his hands on 16 boxes of morphine tartrate serrets, stolen from a Navy yard by an acquaintance, as well as a sawed-off Tommy gun with an automatic pistol cartridge. Surrets are these toothpaste-like tubes with a little needle on the end, the kind used on the front line of war for wounded soldiers. He started shooting them up and selling them on the side to supplement his $200 a month allowance. Hanging out in Times Square, meeting all kinds of street people, hustlers, junkies, con men, thieves. Just like the book he loved so much as a kid, you can't win. As he'd later say, I'm a seeker after cities and souls. This is when the man we'll see as the iconic William Burroughs began to really appear. Billy was gone now. William is Harvard-educated, well-spoken, very well-dressed in a three-piece suit with a snap-brim fedora hat, which makes him invisible, slipping in and out of the crowds of men dressed exactly like them, lurking in the shadows of the underworld, living a life of crime as an outlaw, selling Tommy guns and dope, always eager to stick a syringe full of smack into his veins. And then a most amazing thing, William fell in love, and with all people, a woman, Joan. Joan was the only one of the crowd who was really an intellectual equal to Burroughs, but she was also a speed freak and sex addict with a daughter, and William was a morphine addict homosexual. It's hard to think of a more bizarre couple, but it was their wit and great intelligence that brought them together. They were always the two smartest people in the room, the two funniest. Her, high, full of color and energy and rattling on about Mayan codices. Him mumbling devastatingly funny one-liners or passages of Shakespeare as he nodded out, looking like a corpse. But their love was an intimate one as well. Joan judged her lovers, kept notes on them, called them coxmen, compared and contrasted them. She told her friends that Burroughs, quote, fucked like a pimp and was one of her best. So Burroughs took the commitment a step further and moved in with her. They were a bona fide couple, sleeping in the same bed at night, sharing the domestic chores. It would almost make a good television sitcom. The gay morphine addict criminal and intellectual speed freak wife and her little daughter. <laughs> but all was not bliss. Burroughs was hanging out with some very unsavory fellows, and he ended up getting arrested over stolen blank prescription pads. He does his first night in jail utterly junk-sick, and it wouldn't be his last. The judge was lenient, and instead of giving him prison time, sent him back to St. Louis to his parents' care. With Burroughs gone, the little group of bohemians fell apart. The libertine circle was no more. Allen Ginsberg joined the merchant marines. 
Edie moved to Gross Point. Kerouac was just wandering around aimlessly, high on speed, writing compulsively, crashing wherever. Joan was falling apart, having psychotic episodes from all the meth, and she couldn't pay the rent with no more roommates. And William, back in St. Louis, now clean, he gets a wild idea. He is going to go live off the land, get closer to nature, grow his own food. And to supplement it all, he's going to grow marijuana. He's like the first fucking hippie. This is 1947. And William Burroughs is going to go off grid, get close to nature and grow some weed. Saying, fuck the system. And he's so ahead of his time. You really got to love it. He convinces his parents to buy him a bunch of land in Texas, a 50-acre allotment on a cotton and citrus farm that was up and running in the Rio Grande Valley. He didn't even have to do anything, just reaped the profits, and also a decrepit and crumbling 99-acre homestead 40 miles north of Houston, where he could live with nature and grow his weed. And then Joan cabled him. She was pregnant with his child. He says he knew it the night it happened, could sense it. She asked him if she should get an abortion, and he tells her, Certainly not. He asks her to join him on the farm. So Joan and her daughter Julie, now four years old, headed to Texas. I love this part of the story. Burroughs goes into Mexico and gets a divorce from Ilsa, and he and Joan become common-law man and wife. They're out there living completely off-grid, young and wild. There's no electricity, no hot water. Just a wood stove for heat in this ramshackle farmhouse at the end of a long dirt road. It's a blueprint for a million hippie freaks that would follow in his footsteps. Me included. They got a four-wheel drive Jeep to navigate the back roads. Bill's got some good weed seeds from some of his underground connections. Namely, this crazy junkie he'd befriended in New York City, Punky, who moved in and was living with them. Punky was a real character, a hustler, like something off the pages of You Can't Win, with a real street slang way of talking. He was always saying beat, how some batch of dope was so bad it was beat, how they themselves were beat. Life was just being beat down. They were living in a beat world. Kerouac loved the way he used the word, but also saw in it something different, as in beautific. Beatitude, as in holy, a holiness of the beat and the rhythm of the beat, like jazz music. And Jack Kerouac started saying that they were the beat generation. He'd say they were, quote, A vision gleamed from the way we had heard the word beat spoken on street corners on Times Square and in the village, in other cities, in the downtown city night of post-war America. Beat, meaning down and out, but full of intense conviction. We'd even heard old 1910 daddy hipsters of the street speak the word that way with melancholy sneer. It never meant juvenile delinquents. It meant characters of a special spirituality who didn't gang up over solitary Bartleby's staring out the dead wall window of our civilization. The subterranean heroes who'd finally turned from the freedom machine of the West and were taking drugs, digging hop, having flashes of insight, experiencing the derangement of the senses, talking strange, being poor and glad, prophesizing a new style for American culture, a new incantation, new angels of the American underground. William, Joan, and Punky fell into the rhythm of the land, planting a nice vegetable garden in the rich, fertile soil, 
having a large crop of tall cannabis plants, a mess of chickens, hand pumping the water. Joan's pregnant, and then that summer, they had a little boy. They named William Burroughs III. And then who shows up but Allen Ginsberg, who wanted to introduce Burroughs to his new friend, Neil Cassidy, a fast-talking wild child from Denver. Allen was in love with Cassidy, which made things very awkward, as Cassidy was ostensibly straight, more or less, and was absolutely girl-crazy. Uh, Cassidy would hook up with Alan sometimes, you know, for kicks, but in no way was it romantic for him like it was for Alan. Frustrated, Alan decides to bail, to leave Texas, and found a job as a mess man on a freighter, leaving for France from Houston. Cassidy promised to spend his last night with him at a hotel and showed up with a girl he'd picked up, which infuriated Alan. Wild child Cassidy ended up sleeping with them both that night at different times. And so now Neil Cassidy, who Burroughs didn't even really know, is there on the farm and he's being Neil Cassidy. He's doing speed with Joan, talking a mile a minute, juggling hammers, pretty much getting on Burroughs' nerves to no end. But the weed was ready to harvest, so Neil came in handy. Plus, he was famous for driving long distances nonstop. So when all the weed was dried and packed into mason jars, Filling the back seat of the old Jeep, Burroughs and Cassidy drove it to New York, having Joan, the baby, and Julie take the train. Cassidy did nearly all the driving, laughing at how Burroughs would pull to the side when a car passed, saying he drove like an old woman. With all the jazz clubs and hipsters and criminals they knew in New York City, all of Bill's criminal connections in Times Square, it would be easy to get rid of all the dope. There was only one problem. They had no idea how to grow pot, and while they all may have smoked lots of joints in their time, they really knew nothing about what cannabis looked like or even really was. They hadn't separated the male plants from the females, so not only did they have seedy female pot, they harvested the male plants as well. Male plants have none of the psychoactive THC, they're just a mess of yellow flowers and useless pollen. And they hadn't trimmed the pot at all, they hadn't taken any of the leaves off. It was basically garbage, a mess of leaves and seeds and male flowers. When Burroughs gave a sample to a hipster hotel bellhop who moved a lot of dope, he said, Hey man, that's awful. That's green tea. Jesus, it's terrible. He thought they'd make thousands and thousands of dollars, have a huge nest seed egg. Instead, he'd sold the whole crop to some Italian gangsters for a hundred bucks and vowed to never grow weed again. He sold his homestead, but he kept his stake in the cotton farm. Seeing how legitimate farms ran showed him there was no real morality or law in the world. All these respectable farms were run with illegal Mexican workers that Border Patrol allowed to enter for cheap labor and who were often cheated and shortchanged, sometimes forced to work at gunpoint. As Burroughs said in a letter to Ginsburg, my ethical position now that I am a respectable farmer is probably shakier than when I was pushing junk. The only possible ethic is to do what one wants to do. 
Then he and Joan were arrested in Texas for drunk driving and indecent exposure when they drunkenly pulled over on the side of the road one night and started having sex, only to be rudely interrupted by an officer of the law. In jail for having sex and with a woman at that, Burroughs was sick of these systems of control, sick of New York, sick of Texas, always getting in trouble, always ending up in jail. He needed a new place to settle down with his family, a place where there were plenty of drugs and a thriving gay scene, a place where he could buck the systems of control, always trying to repress him. He decided on New Orleans and moved his family to the Big Easy in 1948. New Orleans is a bastion of freedom in some ways, but it's also scary as hell. I can only imagine what it was like in 1948. But Burroughs fell right in, hanging out at the seedy bars and jazz joints, mingling with the criminals, the merchant seamen, gamblers and drifters, and of course, the junkies, getting back on the dope hard. Burroughs said the problem with New Orleans was that it was too easy to cop dope. The town was full of pushers underbidding each other. But at the same time, it had some of the toughest laws in the country. Simple possession was a felony. Just being a drug addict was illegal, meaning if you had track marks on your arms, you could be charged and locked up. Joan, meanwhile, was getting all the legal meth she could and speeding her brains out, cleaning and scrubbing the floor at four in the morning, obsessively raking the lizards out of the trees, beginning to hallucinate, seeing fire dancing from the corners of her eyes. But back in New York, Kerouac was in the process of getting his first novel published. The editor of Harcourt Brace, Robert Giro, was very interested in the book, entitled The Town and the City. Jack and the new guy, Neil Cassidy, had become great friends. To Kerouac, Cassidy embodied the restless spirit and, the, and enthusiasm for life in an absurd and nihilistic world that he saw as key to who the Beat generation were. And Jack Kerouac and his new best friend, Neil Cassidy, were off on all kinds of adventures trying to discover the essence of what America was, what this Beat generation meant, working on railroads and laboring in the fields beside Mexican immigrants, smoking reefers and dark jazz clubs, drinking jugs of wine with hobos by the railway tracks. And then one day they came rolling into New Orleans to visit Burroughs, which Kerouac would later so vividly describe in his seminal book, On the Road, calling Neil Cassidy Dean, quote, We were suddenly driving along the blue waters of the Gulf, and at the same moment a momentous mad thing began on the radio. It was the Chicken Jazz and Gumbo disc jockey show from New Orleans. All mad jazz records with the disc jockey saying, Don't worry about nothing. We saw New Orleans in the night ahead of us with joy. Dean rubbing his hands on the wheel. Now we're going to get our kicks. We bounced the car up on the Algiers Ferry and found ourselves crossing the Mississippi River by boat. Now we must all get out and dig the river and the people and smell the world, said Dean, bustling with his sunglasses and cigarettes and leaping out of the car like a jack-in-the-box. On rails, we leaned and looked at the great brown father of waters rolling down from mid-America like the torrent of broken souls, bearing Montana logs and Dakota muds and Iowa vows and things that had drowned in three forks where the secret began in ice. 
At one point, Allen Ginsberg, who's beginning to really celebrate his queerness, writes Burroughs a letter accusing him of being fake for being married to Joan, of denying his homosexuality, saying he should think of Joan and her needs, that he was being cruel and selfish by being with her, that it was a mess and he was living a lie. Burroughs' response really displays so much about him and about his relationship with Joan. Now, Alan, this business about Joan and myself is downright insane. I never made any pretensions of permanent heterosexual orientation. What lie are you talking about? Like I say, I never promised or even implied anything. How could I promise something that is not in my power to give? I am not responsible for Joan's sexual life. Never was, never pretended to be nor are we in any particular mess. In March 1949, Jack Kerouac's first novel is published, The Town and the City. But sadly for the group of Bohemians, it gets mediocre reviews and is generally ignored. And then Burroughs gets busted. The chief of police launched an anti-drug drive, and cops were swarming well-known places to score and pulled Burroughs and another junkie over. In the car, they found an unregistered pistol on Burroughs, who loved guns, and a letter he was writing to Allen Ginsberg in the glove box, talking all about marijuana growing, which made the cops think he was some kind of big kingpin. They raided his house, found a mason jar of a shitty pot, some heroin, syringes, and of course, a whole mess of illegal guns. Just possession was a mandatory two to five year term in Angola State Prison, which was known for being one tough place to do time. Meanwhile, William had to be hospitalized because of his heroin withdrawal. It was so strong that he ended up in a sanitarium where he was given Demerol. When he got out, his lawyer told him, You're hot as a firecracker in this town, boy. I have permission from the judge for you to leave the state. Burroughs longed for a return to... Our glorious frontier heritage of minding your own business. <laughs> but he thought the frontiersmen had been transformed into wretched, interfering bureaucrats and saw the United States as a police state heading in the direction of Russia. Thinking if he stayed in America, he'd probably end up doing a minimum of two years in prison in Angola. He fled to Mexico, where he thought he could finally be free. And in September of 1949... William Burroughs moved the family south of the border and got an apartment in Mexico City. Little did he know it would be a 24-year period of exile. Chapter 4, Mexico City Blues. Burroughs found an apartment on a dead-end street in a quiet neighborhood at 37 Serrata de Medellin. He absolutely loved Mexico. No one asked questions. Everyone minded their own business. Everyone had guns. The cops didn't bother you. They had no real power. He started taking classes in Mayan and Mexican archaeology at Mexico City College and thought of applying for Mexican citizenship. The only drawback was that Joan was unable to get her speed. The pharmacies didn't sell the benzedrine inhalers. She went through three weeks of withdrawal, popping pills and developing a severe taste for tequila. Eventually, she was over her addiction, but now a complete lush polishing off tequila bottles, which sold for 40 cents a quart at the market on the corner. Burroughs, meanwhile, was in junkie heaven. He met a street peddler who sold crucifixes, 
known as Old Dave, who carried a syringe in his lapel. He got him a prescription to morphine. The first time Burroughs saw the pharmacist bring out a box full of morphine cubes, he felt like a child on Christmas. He'd never seen so much morphine at once. Old Dave then took Burroughs on a pilgrimage to the patron saint of junkies and thieves, Our Lady of Chama, to give thanks. And Burroughs started writing again, a book about the drug world called Junkie. He sent Allen Ginsberg a copy. Allen said it glorified drug use and justified heroin, to which Burroughs said, I don't justify nothing to nobody. As a matter of fact, the book is the only accurate account I ever read of the real horror of junk. I don't mean it as a justification or deterrent or anything, but as an accurate account of what I experienced. Burroughs, seeing that his morphine habit was getting dangerously out of control, decided to kick, using the same method Joan had for meth. Tequila. He managed to stay drunk enough to ease the pain of slowly weaning himself off morphine. And feeling rejuvenated, he took on a new lover, a young man named Eugene Allerton. They embarked on a trip to South America together. Burroughs wanted to go to Ecuador to try a hallucinatory drug the Indians call Yage, which is the key product in ayahuasca. Burroughs and Eugene went on an insane adventure, flying to Panama City, then into Ecuador and over the Andreas Mountains, wandering deep into the jungles of Peru, hiking trails for days, where they met an American botanist named Fuller, who lived with the Indians. But though the botanist was cordial enough at first, he grew suspicious of the two men, I wouldn't help track down the Yage they so desperately sought, so they returned to Mexico City empty-handed. When Burroughs returned, he felt overcome with a strange depression. He didn't know what it was. Taking an antique knife to get sharpened, he suddenly broke down in tears. There were the inevitable money problems. There always was. His $200 a month allowance didn't get a family of four far, even in Mexico. So Burroughs decided to sell his 380 automatic pistol. He didn't like it anyway. It was a cheap gun that always shot low. He knew a guy that was interested and arranged a meeting for that afternoon at his friend John Haley's room above the bar, The Bounty. It was Thursday, September 6th, 1951. When Burroughs and Joan went to the room to sell the gun, the buyer wasn't there yet. So they sat down and had a drink. It was a party pad. There were empty bottles lying all over, and a bottle of Oso Negro gin and ten dirty glasses on the table. Burroughs took the pistol he planned on selling from his case and looked it over. He told of how he'd had to hunt in the jungle, that maybe he should start supplementing their diet with meat he supplies. Jane laughed and said if Bill was the hunter, they'd starve to death. William then said... Why don't we show them what a good shot old Bill is? Time for our old William Tell game. Joan then turned her head to the side and balanced her glass of gin on her head, saying, I can't look. You know I hate the sight of blood. William Burroughs then pointed the pistol at the glass, perched there on his wife's head, and from just ten feet away, squeezed the trigger. The shot ringing out deafening 
in the little room. When Joan tumbled off her chair, William thought she was joking at first. Then he saw the glass rolling toward him, perfectly intact. And when he glanced back to Joan, sprawled there on the ground, he saw there was a bullet hole in her temple, with a small puddle of blood sluicing out of the wound. And that's where we're going to leave you for today. But be sure to come back next week to hear what happens to old bull, William S. Burroughs, the literary outlaw. Bam, <laughs> what do you bam, bam. That's great. I... Yeah, so what do we think about this? What do you think? What are your thoughts before I give mine? Well, you know, um, I think that, uh, you know, these people were just so important to um, the culture we live today, to the freedom that we have today, to uh, what we understand as, as literature and writing and art and poetry. And, um, you know, we'll get more into this next week, but he influenced so many people. All of these guys did. In particular, Ginsburg, Kerouac, and Burroughs. Their influence can just be felt by so many things and you don't really realize you know what what links back to them i mean burroughs invented the word um <clears throat> blade runner so many science fiction concepts he came up with in these weird bizarre like kind of poetry writing that were taken up by other writers william gibson says that uh naked lunch was like his biggest influence with when he wrote all that stuff all of his cyberpunk I don't know. I just have a great affinity for them. Like like we said during the show, they're they're not perfect. They're deeply flawed, and uh, they should be looked at with a grain of salt. You know, you don't want to. I, I have a. I, I want to emulate them, and they're my heroes. But at the same time, like it's, there's a lot wrong with them. You know, but um, yeah, I think they're amazing. I love them. And this incident is just so. <sighs> It's a stupid thing to do. I mean, yeah. Even if he had shot it right, he says that later. He's like, even if I hadn't shot her in the head, I would have. It would have been broken glass flying all over this little room. It was like there was like all these people in there. It was like it was very dangerous, very stupid. He he says he doesn't know what he was thinking. It just kind of happened. I think they were really drunk. Yes. There was ten empty bottles of gin laying on the ground when the cops showed up. Jesus, it's it's, it's a tragedy and an avoidable one, but. Yeah, and I'm interested uh, to hear and talk with you about the aftermath next week for the rest of our listeners. Um, I I agree with so much of what you said too about just their there were like giants for to people to so many other writers and to just a whole generation of of people and thinkers and, and writers and artists and yeah, just crazy that there was also these like. You know, like the Lucian murder, there, there are these really moments of just horror and like really not great yeah. stuff that went along with it. So it's it's kind of crazy to see everything big picture and not just look at like one piece of it, like just the literature or just this incident. It's I do think it's interesting to look at everything together and kind of get a better feel for it. I mean, that's a everybody was doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot and it's just Nothing good comes from that. Yep. And it does not seem like he killed her on purpose. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, do people he, really think that? 
he fell on it. You know what I mean? He was like hitting his head. He's like, I knew the gun shot low. Why did I do this? Is there even free will? Does anything matter? Right. Like, and like, and he had started crying before it happened, which made him think it was like destiny. And it was so weird. Yeah, like, I mean that shit is weird. It is. Hmm. Well, yeah, we'll find out the aftermath next week. And thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will see you next week. But yeah, we'll we'll hear more about it next week, and we hope you all tune in. And you know we want to hear from you. Do you have a case you think we should cover? Do we get something wrong? You just want to say hi, drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week.